Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, A Constructional Guide to Becoming Your Horse's Best Friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm also the author of a new children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. In August, we indulged in a lengthy conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a behavioral analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where she has recently taken on a new role. She is now the chair of the Department of Behavioral Analysis. This is part four of our conversation with Claire. We are very much down in the weeds, looking at the definitions of words that both trainers and behavioral analysts use on a regular basis. We started in episode 248 by asking, what is shaping? Now we're going to ask, what is behavior? The nuances of the definition form the basis for a great conversation that takes us in some surprising directions, beginning with, do plants behave? What do you think? We'll find out what we think as we jump straight in to consider the question, what is behavior? So I don't remember who it was that, I, that got me started on whether or not behavior analysts know what behavior is. Mm-hmm. And so I went looking for definitions of behavior in our textbooks. And our definitions of behavior, so I started with, I started with more modern textbooks. And it is, the definition of behavior often like anything an organism does. Well, then I, so I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a plant biologist. And she said, well, then plants, are plants part of your domain, right? Are, you're a behavior analyst. Would, would you consider plant, like, would you consider trees to be part of what you would study? And I said, well, no, not normally. And she why said, well, not? then your, def- your definition yeah, why is not? Bad. They yeah. turn towards the sun. They Yeah. They certainly behave. Yep. And the, oh more, the, more we, the more we learn about plants, the more we see how just amazingly complex their behavior is. Yeah. Well, I think it was you that mentioned, it was a podcast episode or two ago, Immense World, is that the title yes. of the book? Yeah. Yep. Which, so you mentioned on the podcast and I picked it up and I'm reading it and you go like, well, I have no idea how anything, you know, there's all this behavior out there in the world that yeah, that we is would be fascinating to study more. Anyway, so then I went like, well, that definition seems, what does an organism do? How do you know when they're doing something? And so, so right, if you're going to talk about trees, the, the time scale, right? Like when we talk about humans and rats and pigeons and horses and dogs, the time scale is really short on the instances of behavior. You know, like we're not usually studying behavior that takes a day mm-hmm. where the movement cycle is a full right. day. Or, but, but when you have a tree that is being chewed on, or the acacia tree that's being chewed on by a giraffe, and it puts out chemicals that mm. tell all the neighboring trees that I'm being chewed on, increase the bitter tasting chemicals in your leaves because the giraffes are coming your way. That's behavior. I mean, all the defenses that plants have, 
Is well, that part so of behavior? The acacia example, I think, is a is a really clear example of where you could say I would make a case for the for that being behavior. Doing it's doing it's a doing. The the which the one is is it you're saying the, the tree one? is the tree is being mm-hmm. chewed on by a giraffe. Mm-hmm. That tree that is being chewed on by a giraffe produces chemicals that mm-hmm. go out into the air that are detected by neighboring trees and the neighboring trees then increase they change the chemical composition of their leaves and this chemical is not produced if there is no giraffe chewing right so there there the occasion or the antecedent is the giraffe chewing or the the examples of so you have a, a flower that has a particular shape and mm-hmm. the, the plants can hear, we use hear, can hear when there is a, an appropriate pollinator that has landed in that flower and they will increase the amount of nectar so that mm-hmm. the pollinator goes down into the flower, gets covered with the pollen and leaves. And you can do little studies where you produce the vibration, you can put a vibrational tone, and you'll see the the amount of nectar go, go up. That's behavior. Yeah, I think... Um... We just haven't had the tools to study it. You know, we, we didn't... First of all, we didn't look, because we said it's a tree. It's a plant. Right. You know, it's a rock. They don't, they don't behave. And now we're discovering, our eyes are being opened. The peachy wood house, the, the, you know, the, the, the shingles have fallen from before my eyes. And, and we are really understanding how just amazingly complex this planet is and that the plants that we had so dismissed are doing a whole lot more than we ever thought they were doing. So behavior has to include. It's interesting, right? I'll add something to this, maybe a little bit less esoteric than the plants, but when I try to translate the word behavior in French, and when I look at different textbook and translation, I'm never satisfied with the translation. And I don't know if it's true in other languages, but every time I see a translation, a word, it seems to not encompass everything that I think behavior means in English. So the words that come up in French would be, you know, a gesture, an exercise. A, it, it, it doesn't seem to have the richness that behavior, the word, how it is used in English. So there's something about that word, about the definition of that word. That's that an, is it's an, It's an interesting point. So I taught a behavior analysis class in Lille, France. And you, you wonder, some of the concepts were challenging. Of course, the language is challenging anyway. But... I wonder if part of the reason that behavior analysis remains a pretty Americanized approach is a language issue, right? Like if we're 
thinking about behavior, if our, if our language makes us think about behavior differently than the translations lead people. But is, is it Americanized behavior analysis? I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Did you yeah. know that, Alex? I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, okay. That's disappointing. So you're going to find pockets. <laughs> the, the most, the biggest pockets are going to be in the U.S., Canada, some in Mexico, and then Australia and New Zealand. And so it's, it is English English speaking. What about the UK? There are a couple of good programs in the UK. Per capita, it would be hard to say. Wow. So so, English speaking countries. So behavior, so getting back to behavior, Mm -hmm. what an organism does. So I trace the definition. So the first definition, the exposure that I had, I got involved in behavior analysis. I had a biology background and got involved in behavior analysis by completely by accident. And was my first exposure was from a, a scientist named Hank Pennypacker, who wrote one of the seminal methods textbooks in the field. And so... Hank had a definition of behavior that we learned when I was exposed to behavior analysis originally. And I, I'll tell it to you, but it's it's got, before I tell it to you, I will say, it's got lots of parts in it. And so when I was reading these modern textbooks and I thought anything an organism does, and I learned this very long definition of behavior when I learned about what behavior was. And I went back to that original textbook that he published this definition in. And so he's got the definition of behavior. And then following the definition of behavior, each section of that definition essentially has its own page about what this means and what the boundary conditions are and why you would think about it this way. And, you know, like what, how this, the implications of this particular piece. Well, that textbook has evolved and it's now, so I, I went back to the first edition of it, which has this long description of, you know, if you're a science of behavior, shouldn't you know what behavior is? And like, we're going to very clearly define the boundaries of what behavior is. And then I think the fourth edition came out just a couple of years ago. And the definition is now essentially like anything an organism does. So it's, it's interesting that there are some contingencies in place that have caused this definition, even within the same text, to evolve across time and across the the authors, but do you want to, do you want to know the long one? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to sell it to you in parts because it's long. So the behavior of an organism, well, I'm going to read the whole thing and then I'll walk you through all the parts, I guess. The behavior of an organism is that portion of an organism's interaction with its environment that is characterized by detectable displacement in space through time of some part of the organism and that results in a measurable change in at least one aspect of the environment. Wow. So that's a far cry from anything an organism does. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting to think about all those pieces. So the behavior of an organism is an interaction between the organism and the environment. And they say like, that's because the organism doesn't own the behavior. It's not in the organism. It doesn't come out. Of the, it's not like I am a like little clump of behavior and then at some point I will have behaved all my behaving 
and it will all be out of me. And then I'll just be a shell. It's like, well, behavior is organism and environment. Yeah. And it only exists in the interaction. And so it places equal weight on the organism, on the learner and on the environment. And I think that's kind of, that's an interesting piece about that definition that you have to be thinking about your environment and what an implication for animal training that has, right? When you think about these horses that are the rescue that I volunteer for has a, a big adoption event coming up next weekend and they have spent the last two weeks trying to do like anti like rescue horses or damaged goods. You'll never be able to do anything with them campaigns, Mm. right? Because it's not about this horse is a static thing. It's this horse in a particular environment and how can Mm. you set up the environments and they, to their credit, spend a lot of time talking about like what kind of environment this particular horse would need or would benefit from or does best in because the behavior is not in the environment and it's not in the learner organism. It's in that interaction. Yes. I think that's an interesting piece of richness that, that is in this definition that gets lost. Okay. So portion of the organism interaction with its environment that is characterized by detectable displacement in space through time. This is a piece of the definition movement. So my arm is displaced, right? Like it, it was in one place and it is now in another place. It has been displaced. It has been moved. So the argument for this piece of it is it puts the emphasis on movement. Which I don't know. It seems that you can be very still. And I don't know. Indeed. You can teach your horse to be very still. And I think Alexandra Curlin would tell you that horse is still moving. Right, like there's a difference that that all behavior is moving. Well, they're doing they're doing something, but they're, they're for me, moving something. means that you were in one place and you changed something in the space. Maybe I'm wrong, but so if you're in grown ups, you're alive, you're doing something, but you're not really. It's I don't the, know, moving. The, are you? It's the dead horse rule. Anything that a dead horse. But would you say do. that grown-ups is a movement? I wouldn't. We is it a movement? It, we teach it using movement. Yeah, but we it's teach it out of movement. Bit... So you can know. say it is a result of movement. So you move into stillness. Yeah. But when I'm clicking, because I mean, we're talking about behavior, right? We're defining behavior here. I don't know. For me, grown-ups is a still, is it a still movement? <laughs> and so, and if we go back to the plants, if a plant is producing chemicals. A movement. What does that do? I mean, because I would say the plant is behaving. Yeah, but it's but, not moving. That's why they got rid of that part. Yeah, it, I that part is, just, is very controversial joking. because yeah. I think, you know, now we have to do modern behaviorists it. would say that even events that you can't see still count as behavior, right? Thinking is behavior, feeling things is behavior. And then that that's a little tricky when it comes to detectable displacement. You've got to get really molecular to say there's neurons firing there, right? So how small can you get? 
Mm. And if you look at the, so I mentioned that this original paper had pages associated with each of the sections. And I think the original, the first edition of the text was published in the early 80s. One of the things that they say in, in part of the pages about detectable displacement is, what can you detect? And so if you can detect, if you can detect that that chemical is being released, then it's detectable. If you can detect that someone is thinking something or feeling something, then it's it's a detectable displacement at that point. And if you can't detect it, then you shouldn't infer that it's happening. You should be able to talk about it, measure it, see it in some way. But you're Um, right, Alex, when you say you move into stillness, because before you were moving, and after you're not moving anymore. So it's a detectable displacement in a way, I suppose. It's an interesting little puzzle to solve because yeah. there, because I think our ability to detect things is different now than it was when they wrote mm-hmm. the definition. That makes, it, that makes it challenging. I think when you have a grown-ups, like one of my horses grown-ups into the pose, and so... For him, grown-ups is, is a detectable displacement generally mm-hmm. because, and even his chill grown-ups, he has a very particular, like he puts himself in a very particular frame yeah. for it. And so that's detectable displacement. But one of the things when, I think it might have been one of the first clinics that I did because I stumbled into them out of order, you might remember, was you said you're always, you're always looking for movement. And it was the video that you have of the white horse in the, I don't remember what you were building. It was a very complex behavior and you had duct tape dots on them, right? And you were like, watch the dots. And I think it was a fairly still-ish behavior that you were looking for, but you built it out of the movement of those little muscles. And that's something that always stuck with me is that Mm. When you were shaping something, you were always looking for movement, even if the ultimate result was stillness. Stillness, right. Yeah. Okay. So we buy it. But it's, so going back to the thinking part, Mm. so we might see the result of something and infer that you were thinking about, I don't know, chocolate cake. We can't measure detect the thinking process yet 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 so we infer that that you were thinking based on behavior that we see presented we could not detect the chemicals that were being released by plants but i can certainly when i'm out walking the goats and I watch them change from day to day to day the plants that yesterday they were not touching and today they are now eating something has changed Mm -hmm. yes it's interesting about it's interesting about what you can what you can measure and what you have direct access to and what you have to take your best guess at right so I, I mentioned earlier that I had my students shape each other's behavior in class and it's a really fun exercise. I don't ever focus on this, but if you can get them to report what they were thinking yeah. at each click, they'll start to report thinking the same thing that they were thinking at the last click. 
So I, I can't put my contingency on it because I can't measure what you're thinking. And I don't know if you're thinking about thing X right now, but it appears that we can increase at least reports of thinking about the same thing or, you know, you get that, you can, you can see it in yourself. You can detect it in yourself, right? Like you get into patterns and certain things, thoughts get reinforced and then they start to happen more often. And it looks very operant behavior. Like even though we might not be able to fully detect it yet, where externally somebody could put a contingency on it. But if you can set up a situation where I think about chocolate cake and then you start to deliver reinforcers, maybe I start to think about chocolate cake more. Yeah. So, so I do like the interaction with the environment. I think that's critical in terms of the definition of behavior. Movement may start to get into some tricky areas. Mm-hmm. Particularly the movement in space. Yes. So I guess it's, it depends on how small your detection is and how small of a space you're willing to consider, right? So would you be willing to consider if we could detect it, the release of neurotransmitters across a synapse? Is that... Is that movement? It's is that movement? Something moves. Something's um, moving. Absolutely. In space through time, we can't really detect it very well yet. But would we, is that the blend of, you know very molecular levels of behavior. Would we say say that that cell is behaving? Right. And if you get enough of those going in the same direction. And why not? Yeah, sure. Because we we talk about amoebas behaving. Mm -hmm. So why not? Yeah, there have been demonstrations of shaping and, and, and change in in behavior with contingencies with single-celled organisms and non-vertebrate organisms, certainly. So they respond to the same laws of behaviors. It looks that way. Mm-hmm. All evidence points in that direction. But mm-hmm. it is like, what is what is space? You know, you 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 end up. I was having this conversation with a colleague of mine because we kind of fell down this hole together. And I was, you know, you get to the point where you're like, what is space? What is time? (laughs) It's the final frontier. Everybody knows that. (laughs) You know, so like how, how molecular of a space are we willing to consider here? Or do Mm -hmm. we just drop that portion of the definition? I do think it's a, a trickier part. And then the last part of the definition is that it results in some measurable change in the environment. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that it means that behavior wouldn't be considered behavior if it, in a very technical way, behavior wouldn't be considered behavior if it wasn't functional, if it didn't do something to your environment. And so it has to have some, that behavior has to have some impact on your environment for it to be part of this class of what these authors say behavior analysts should be studying. Like this is how we should talk about what behavior is. So what would that exclude? Anything that is not functional, which is nothing. Which is, I yeah, it's interesting to think about like what would pragmatically, what would that exclude? So nothing say? is not oh. functional. Everything so is functional, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, everything that, is that, functional. But that that's the question. So we whenever we end up making statements like that, we have to we have to do the four-year-old, you know, 
questioning of why is that really yeah. true? Um, well, what it what it might do is if you start thinking about that as part of your definition of behavior, it might it might clue that there's two ways that you can slice. There's at least two ways that you can slice behavior. One is by form. What does it look like? And one is by function. What does it do? Behavior can have very different form in the same function, obviously. And, you know, when you think about working with the horses, you know, if a horse wants you to back off, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of forms that that functional behavior can take. And when we're working with horses that have that history, you know, the first step might be to teach a better form that results Mm -hmm. in that same function, right? Like you want me to back off, I will back off. This is what we're going to ask of you to do that right now and and make sure that we've got our environment set up in a way that it's safe to do that. And we see the emergence of of the early versions of that behavior. But I think we tend to slice behavior very form wise. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? I think behavior analysts are particularly prone to some of this. And I think in some ways, that's part of the disconnect that you mentioned between the shaping the way that animal lab people think about it and shaping the way that animal trainers probably think about it yeah is that you know in the animal lab it's all function based like does it close the switch or not and it doesn't per your example from earlier right doesn't matter if you're hitting it with your front paws or you're sitting on it right it's all what uh, impact did that have on the environment did it close the switch or did it not close the switch but if you re-slice that behavior into form you're going to get a lot of different variations. You might have a paw press that doesn't fully depress the lever, but looks a lot like the one that does. And you will end up with very different measures of the same presses the lever. So maybe that idea of has an impact on the environment calls to attention that you can think about behavior in these two different ways by form and by function. And you're going to slice the world kind of differently when you do yes. that. Yep. But for the organism, whether it touches it this way or that way, the function is to get the food. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a big issue when I work with kids because often what I see when schools set up behavior management plans is that school-wide, class-wide behavior management plans is that the students who are meeting expectations, following the rules, completing all their work get less attention less acknowledgement Mm -hmm. less exposure to meaningful adults in their life than the kids who are not meeting the expectations not following the rules and causing major disruption and so when I talk to school leaders I say like look at your look at your system is it set up this way because a lot of them are set up that way Mm -hmm. and now you have you have topographically very different responses that function to get access to attention, acknowledgement, time with important school leaders. And if the forms that are appropriate produce less of that than the forms that are of the classroom destruction variety, then that school has a problem on their hands. But it's it's because people think about the form and they only think about the form and they're not thinking about exactly what you just said, Dominique, which is that like many different forms can serve the same function, mm-hmm. which gets us all the way back to schedules. Right. That's just a schedules manipulation. Because yeah. what's the answer to that is to flip the schedules on their head so that the appropriate form of behavior that serves the same function for the student 
right? The learn to the learner, it's all the same. But that appropriate form now results in more, better, faster, bigger access to reinforcers. So. Or is it the requirement changes? <laughs> but it shows you that there is value in really looking at these words that we use mm. and looking deeply at the definitions. In part, it's this whole constructional approach again that I know from my work that everything is very, very, very layered. And this is the challenge that I have in the teaching because there is a lot of preparation that has to go into place to prepare somebody. So for example, you know, when you were talking about the the horse where we were looking at these tiny, tiny little shifts of balance in that first clinic, it takes a lot of preparation of the handler to be able to see those changes, to understand that they're significant and that you can do something with them. And to just jump in cold and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at these tiny, tiny little weight shifts with a novice trainer. It's, it's just going to end up with a mess. You know, it's that whole, it's going to end up with a, a frustrated human learner or the rope handling. There's so many layers to build for the rope handling to be really effective. And if I start out at talking about it in its fully formed, you know, graduate level seminar form of it, I'm going to lose a lot of people. So we don't start there. We start with simple things such as the grown-ups are talking and where the lead is, is just in your hands passive. And you gradually, layer by layer by layer, you add the pieces so that horse and handler can build a good communication via the rope handle. And I just wonder if with some of these definitions, we need to begin with simpler definitions they were going to complicate mm. in order to make them accessible. So if you start out with behavior as it's what an organism does, okay, I can I can deal with that. I can that that's that's good. But it lacks some of the the richness, yeah. Of saying, you know, there's it's it there's an interaction with the environment that's critical. And so you you add you add the complexity mm-hmm. to get to the final definition, but you don't start with that as your opening sentence. Yeah, it would be off-putting for a lot of people yeah. to hear that definition. But I, but it's true. I can see, Claire, that you you like that definition. No, didn't you like it? Now that you're looking at it, do you? Yeah. Well, so I, I think it's interesting to think about. So like is like it's a hard thing to say i think it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about the nuance and yeah. i think once you once you start thinking about things at the phd level just yeah. to borrow alex's term but actually quite literally for me mm-hmm. it is you enjoy the nuance yeah the yeah. nuance is fun you want it and you want it yeah it's richer it tells much more of the story 
But what was what was your definition of what, what did we look at earlier? Contingency. What was your definition uh, of contingency? The first uh, the conditions under which a response produces a consequence, and then Dominique appropriately noted like what's a condition? Mm. Yeah. And then, but it's and, so, in some cases it's hard to say like well the conditions are the antecedents and the consequences right the conditions are the interact is that the the interactive pieces and then is that an easier definition or is it a harder definition if you say it's well it's the antecedents and the consequences your contingency is 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 three or four terms depending on who you are so you at the at a minimum you have your antecedent your behavior and your consequence right your abc but isn't the schedule part of the consequence, kind of? Schedule is part, yeah, absolutely. Schedule is part of your consequence, but you can't say that your schedule is your contingency because then you would be omitting what your antecedent is. No, I meant, it, is. isn't it part of the contingency? Yes. So contingencies can be contiguity, right? Contingencies are functional. And so I can do something and... and Super, I can get superstitious behavior and that's a contingency, but it's not a dependency, right? Like I don't have to do the behavior. Like the pitcher doesn't have to touch their hat three times and then, you know, like whirl the ball around necessarily to get a good pitch across the plate, but it gets built up into a, into a contingency, but there's no dependency there. There is a dependency because you have to engage in the behavior for the reinforcer to happen. So that's what your dependencies are. Like you have to engage in the behavior to get the reinforcer. And then you have a dependent response reinforcer relation at that point. But now I'm tipping into graduate seminar again. Yes, but that's all right. It's, it's good to go back and forth. So we have behavior and there is the, the relationship with the environment. So what is environment? We're going to stop here. Next, we ask, how do you define environment? It's not a simple answer. I was tempted to just keep going, but that would turn this into a very long podcast. So better to split it and let you savor the nuances that we reveal as we explore each of these very familiar words. I love words. I love looking up the derivation of words. Old dictionaries provide the most fun. Do you know what a traveler is? Of course you do. But would you define a traveler as someone who is entitled to call for refreshment on Sunday at a public house by having walked three miles? Probably not. But that is how one of my favorite dictionaries, a 1911 edition of the Concise Oxford Dictionary, defines it. How we define and use words evolves over time. It's just another example of shaping. Everything is connected to everything else. And in this conversation, we have traveled a long way together. So until next time, train well and have fun with your horses. <laughs>